Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from London, I'm Max Foster in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move. Here's what you need to know. Legal tender. El Salvador becomes the first country to accept Bitcoin as a currency. Brazil protests, demonstrators take to the streets on Independence Day and trade record. China's imports and exports surge despite fears over COVID. It is Tuesday. Let's make a move. Well, US markets set to reopen for business after... That Labor Day holiday futures are flat over concerns about the Delta variant, though. Uh, Goldman Sachs has downgraded its U.S. growth forecast, cutting the GDP outlook for this year to 5.7%, down from 6%. Meanwhile, Bitcoin is down as El Salvador becomes the first nation to adopt the cryptocurrency as legal tender. Uh, Here in Europe, stocks are trading mostly lower ahead of a European Central Bank meeting on Thursday. Uh, Shares of Deutsche Telekom are up after it reached a share swap deal with SoftBank to increase its stake in T-Mobile. In Asia, stocks mostly closed higher. Japan's Nikkei gained nearly 1%, whilst the Shanghai Composite Index rose 1.5%. China's exports uh, unexpectedly jumped last month despite a COVID outbreak that closed coastal ports. Uh, We're going to get to the drivers now for you, though. In a remarkable move, El Salvador has just become the first country in the world to accept Bitcoin as legal tender. It says the move will give people greater access to banks and their finances, but not everyone is convinced. Rafael Romo is with us. An extraordinary move, Rafael. Indeed, Max. Uh, The government of El Salvador has invested $203 million in infrastructure to install ATMs that will be available around the country where people will be able to exchange Bitcoin for dollars and the other way around. The Salvadorian National Assembly has also created a fund of $150 million so that there's money readily available if people want to exchange their Bitcoin. And even though the law went into effect today, the reality is that there's a small coastal village in El Salvador that has been using Bitcoin for several years. On the southwestern coast of El Salvador, El Zante is kind of a sleepy beach town. Lies a rocky beach that has been attracting surfers from around the world for decades. It's not the kind of place where you would find luxury resorts. But the coastal village of about 3,000 has begun a small financial revolution that has the potential of reshaping the world economy. For the last several years, an increasing number of people at El Sonte have been using Bitcoin as their main currency for daily transactions. You can pay your car insurance or your school tuition, and they can pay in Bitcoin. Michael Peterson is an American who has been living in El Sonte for eight years. Peterson first traveled here as a surfer in 2004. Now he's the director of Bitcoin Beach, a locally-led initiative supported by a U.S.-based nonprofit organization. Peterson says the initiative has a dual purpose, 
developing the community and promoting Bitcoin. This isn't a business for me. Uh, it's just something that loses money for me. Um, now I have a business in the U.S. that supports my needs, but I just have a love for the community here and a real belief that, that Bitcoin can really um, impact the life of, the, of those that are unbanked and those that are at the bottom rungs of the economic ladder. Peterson is not the only one who's betting that Bitcoin will alleviate El Salvador's endemic poverty. Nayib Bukele, the millennial president of El Salvador, successfully advocated for a law making his country the first to adopt the cryptocurrency as legal tender. Venezuela launched a cryptocurrency three years ago called Petro that was backed by the country's reserves and natural resources. The case of El Salvador is unique in that it's the first country to make Bitcoin legal tender. Here in Mexico, for example, the country's central bank issued a warning over the summer saying cryptocurrencies pose inherent risks and that dealing with them is not legal under current law. This means that banks are not allowed to trade or offer any transactions with them. Some small business owners in El Salvador, like this baker who makes a living selling sandwiches on the street, say they like Bitcoin because it gives them an alternative to make money. It truly isn't difficult to deal in Bitcoin at all, he says. Not far from there, this owner of a tortilla shop says she prefers cold, hard cash. It's something new and we don't have enough information about it, she says. She's not alone. Hundreds of Salvadorians recently took to the streets to send an unequivocal message about cryptocurrencies. They're trying to change the whole country into a casino where those who can afford it, like the Bukele family, can get in and play, he said. El Salvador is not a casino. Back in El Sonte, Peterson says people shouldn't see Bitcoin as a threat, but an opportunity. I think they get it backwards. It, this is what Bitcoin actually fixes. Bitcoin will bring these opportunities to young people so they don't feel like they have to go to the United States in order to feed their family. They can develop a, a successful business here. This deters people from entering the gangs because a big reason people enter the gangs is because they feel like there isn't other opportunities for them. He warns, though, that adopting Bitcoin doesn't mean that El Salvador's problems like poverty and gang violence are going to disappear overnight but he hopes it will empower those at the bottom of the economic ladder in the smallest country in Central America. And Max, as part of this launch, the government plans to install as many as 200 ATMs around the country to exchange Bitcoin for dollars and vice versa. This morning, President Bukele informed they had to temporarily disconnect the app to exchange Bitcoin for dollars due to what he described as a relatively simple problem. The government of El Salvador acquired 400 Bitcoins, equivalent to just over $20 million. Max, back to you. Yeah, it's fascinating. Thank you so much, Rafael. Keep, a, keep across that one, see how it works out. Uh, meanwhile, uh, in the same region, Brazil's Independence Day is being marked by a series of planned rallies for and against President Bolsonaro. He's expected to lead demonstrations against the country's voting system in front of the Supreme Court. Issa Suarez is following that for us. And this is really a demonstration to show that despite his approval rating, he does still have that hardcore support, doesn't he? Spot on. Hi, Max. Yes, I think what we'll see will be very large crowds, despite the fact that his base is dwindling, that his approval ratings, Max, is down to 20%, according to one poll. But we're already seeing large crowds turning out in Brasilia, uh, and then we're expecting anti-Bolsonaro protests later on 
in Sao Paulo too. Expect large crowds, but what you see from the anti, for them, from the pro Bolsonaro camp, will be really his base trying to push his message, Bolsonaro's message, he's been saying throughout Max, which is, you know, the narrative questioning Brazil's uh, electoral system, questioning Brazil's Supreme Court, questioning Brazil's as well uh, Congress. And the reason they are pushing for this uh, and they're against uh, these institutions because President Bolsonaro has been saying time and time again that basically he wants electoral votes, uh, the electronic votes, to be supplemented by paper ballots. Now, that has gone to, to Congress. That's been voted in Congress. It did not pass. And so now what you're hearing from Bolsonaro, Max, is this rhetoric that really he's trying to attack the Supreme Court judges, two of them in particular, because they, there are two probes ongoing against Bolsonaro. One, uh, according, uh, uh, one against really these allegations of, of really fraud uh, that are completely unsubstantiated when it comes to electoral system. And the other is an a probe into fake news uh, and the fake news propaganda that is being propagated according uh, to this probe by Bolsonaro and Bolsonaro's son. So that is the pro-Bolsonaro camp on the anti-Bolsonaro camp I also expect to see large protests today. And Max, really what you would expect is what we've seen throughout the year in Brazil, and that is people just had enough. It, you know, coronavirus uh, has claimed more than 580,000 lives. They blame Bolsonaro for not getting a grip and a handle on the crisis. And then on top of that, you've got a crippling economy. Inflation is soaring, unemployment so high. One economist said to me, Max, today, that is the new lost decade of Brazil. Forget the 1980s. This is the real thing, Max. And something that will impact the wider world particularly is this battle that they've got with the social media companies as well. So Bolsonaro, Bolsonaro trying to stop media companies taking misinformation down. Just clarify what's happening here. Yeah, so basically he's trying to project power once again. Uh, and he's, the new bill that he's introduced in the last 24 hours, it's a bill that he says he argues for its for freedom of expression. But what this bill does, it stops media giants from really removing accounts and removing content. So at the moment, the likes of YouTube, Facebook and Twitter, if you see if they see anything that is fake news, that is misleading, they remove these accounts and they block uh, these comments. What this bill basically do, it will stop them from fact-checking. That's the reality. So once again, Bolsonaro trying to control the message. The only way, according to this law, that the likes of YouTube, Facebook and Twitter can stop this, Max, and I'm going to quote here, is if they provide cause and motivation, according to this bill, uh, for, provide, for removing them. Of course, the reason that he's doing this, that Bolsonaro is pushing for this, Max, is that in July, YouTube removed more than 15 uh, face, uh, false videos that they say are linked to Bolsonaro. This is according to CNN Brazil. And then uh, we've also seen last year Facebook uh, really complying with an order by the Supreme Court in Brazil to retry and block accounts uh, tied to the Bolsonaro allies. He clearly, he's, he's seething with anger and he's trying to control the message, of course, as his base is dwindling and as, is, as really the mood in the country is changing dram dramatically ahead of that election next year in Brazil, Max. OK, Issa, thank you. Uh, China down doing more trade now, it seems, than the rest of the world 
with the rest of the world than ever before. That's despite a global shipping crisis and a resurgence of COVID. Exports and imports both soared to record levels in August. Stephen Jiang joins me now. Uh, how reliable are these numbers then? It does look very positive. Well, Max, uh, that's always a question about all Chinese official data. But, you know, these numbers, as you say, are spectacular. Uh, export surge in more than 25%, import more than 33%, well above analysts' expectations. So leading some to say this points to the resilience of the Chinese economy, easing some fears about this economy, the world's second largest and maybe stalling. But when you break down these numbers, though, you both see the reason behind this, but also indications that this economy may not be out of the woods just yet, because uh, analysts say this surge was likely the result of boosted order f- uh, from orders from American and European retailers ahead, th- ahead of the year-end uh, shopping season. So literally Christmas came early for Chinese exporters. And when you look at the top three export items, that seem to fit the bill as well. Electronics, high-tech products, as well as clothing. And this is probably why this has uh, offset any potential impact from uh, port disruptions in this country. Remember uh, last month, Ningbo, the country's second busiest container port that usually handles some 78,000 containers on a daily basis, had to shut down a terminal when a dock worker tested a positive. That caused a lot of worries and concerns, but now it seems these measures were relatively targeted and they didn't last very long. Another factor that may have benefited Chinese exporters was diverted orders from their rivals, especially in Southeast Asia, where they have been dealing with a new wave of outbreaks as well. But this advantage obviously could ease once these countries have contained their outbreaks and the boosted orders for year-end shopping obviously would not last forever either. And not to mention for many countries around the world, they're still dealing with outbreaks involving the Delta or potentially other new variants as, as well. So that's why even the Commerce Ministry here has warned exporters about slower growth for the rest of the year. But still, these data obviously providing support for a slowing domestic economy. Remember, the authorities here had to tr- take some drastic measures when they had to deal with their biggest outbreak in a year, closing down cities and suspending trade and travel. So effects from these measures may still uh, be trickling down to the economy in the months ahead, not to mention the continued uh, uh, supply bottlenecks and the tighter credit conditions. And on top of these, Max, is something we've been discussing for weeks. That is this broad regulatory crackdown that has wiped out trillions of dollars in market value for Chinese economy. So still a lot of uncertainties and the challenges for the economy ahead. Max. Okay, Stephen, thank you very much indeed. Uh, We're going to go around the world now, see what's making headlines. Uh, In Afghanistan, the Taliban have used force to break up protests on the streets. They fired shots into the air. And reports say they detained women and journalists at the scene. It happened as U.S. officials held talks in Qatar about Afghanistan. The U.S. Secretary of State says Washington is speaking with the Taliban about carrying out more evacuations. in Sam Kiley in Doha, where the talks are being held. Uh, some progress appears to be made. Uh, there are reports that they're using land borders to get some Americans out. A very limited number of Americans, actually, Max, about four. No, not about four, exactly four. A mother and three children crossing, according to the State Department, after a 13-hour wait at the border before they were allowed to cross by Afghan officials. State Department not revealing where that border is because they say they may be using that route again in the past. Whilst negotiations to reopen uh, airports in Kabul and and in Mazari Sharif in the north of the country are ongoing. Also, Secretary Blinken there at that same uh, conference, press conference, saying uh, knocking down allegations from Republicans that the Taliban was somehow involved in 
are holding uh, Americans in particular hostage, uh, uh, preventing them to fly out of Missouri Sharif, suggesting indeed that the problem probably lay in terms of American bureaucracy because there isn't any American present on the ground to process people. But all of this happening at a time when, of course, there are huge numbers of Afghans desperate to get out of the country, but, Max, also large numbers of women uh, and their supporters protesting through the streets of Kabul on a very long protest with several hundred people uh, present uh, that was relatively peaceful, indeed seemed to be being escorted to some degree or policed to some degree fairly efficiently by the Taliban and then turning pretty nasty when they got close to the presidential palace where then the Taliban uh, or perhaps palace guards began firing in the air, arresting journalists, confiscating, confiscating their equipment. A number of journalists have now uh, tweeted that they have been released. Uh, but this is a, the, exactly the sort of thing that is really testing for the Taliban. It's one thing to have their population trying to leave. It's another one being a fractious population on the ground. And this is at least the fourth significant demonstration conducted by women and the supporters of equal white rights for women uh, in Kabul and elsewhere in Afghanistan. All of them have been uh, somewhat suppressed by the Taliban. Uh, previous demonstrations using tear gas and tasers, this one using live fiber into the air. A lot more people arrested here, testing constantly this Taliban pledge to be more moderate to, and to observe uh, human rights, a pledge that they feel they've had to have made, uh, in their case because they believe or claim that they are moderating. Of course, these are the demands being made uh, of the international community in return for the trade and aid that the Taliban want to go uh, want in the future, Max. Okay, Sam, in Doha, thank you. Uh, Brazilian football legend Pele says he's had surgery to remove a tumour. Doctors say the 80-year-old is recovering at a hospital in Sao Paulo. In social media posts, uh, Pele said he's feeling well and is optimistic. We can get more details now from CNN's Patrick Snell. Well, we can tell you that doctors in Sao Paulo treating Brazilian football legend Pele, widely regarded as one of the best players of all time, say the 80-year-old is recovering well in hospital after undergoing surgery to remove a tumour from his colon on Saturday. Now, news of the three-time World Cup winner's operation following Pele's denial of reports that he'd fainted last week when he said that he was in good health and receiving routine examinations. In a statement, the South American Greats medical team revealing that during cardiovascular and laboratory tests, a suspicious lesion in his right colon had been found, which was discovered to be a tumour. Pele, who's Brazil's all-time leading goalscorer, taking to social media on Monday... My friends, thank you very much for the kind messages. I thank God for feeling very well and for allowing Dr. Fabio and Dr. Miguel to take care of my health. Fortunately, I'm used to celebrating great victories alongside you. I will face this match with a smile on my face, a lot of optimism and joy for living surrounded by the love of my family and friends. Well, last year, there were fears over Pele's health, but he dismissed reports he was suffering from depression during his recovery from hip surgery. Pele burst onto the international stage as a 17-year-old at the 1958 World Cup, scoring twice in the final as the Brazilians beat tournament host Sweden 5-2, Brazil's first World Cup title. And in the year 2000, he was named by FIFA, football's world governing body, as its player of the century, an honour he shared with Argentinian icon Diego Maradona. Now, in Australia, rescue workers have found a three-year-old boy 
who had been missing for three days. He was recovered safely from the Australian bush on Monday and reunited with his family. The boy is reportedly autistic and non-verbal. His father told journalists he had ant bites and diaper rash, but otherwise he's okay. Good news. Uh, Let's hear more from Ivan Watson. The dramatic moment when police aircraft spot a missing child after a frightening three-day manhunt. I've got the boy. Stand by, stand. Three-year-old Anthony A.J. Alphalic spotted sitting on a riverbank in the Australian bush drinking water. He went missing off his family's property around noon on Friday and wasn't found until three days later. Hundreds of emergency volunteers joined the search. Little AJ is reportedly autistic and nonverbal. He apparently survived three near-freezing nights in the plunging temperatures of the Australian winter. His exhausted mother says her boy is now home, warm, and sleeping off the ordeal. Oh, I can't explain it. I'm so blessed. I'm so happy that he's here. He's with us. He's safe and well and healthy. That's all that matters. Anthony's father tells journalists his son had diaper rash and suffered ant bites, but is otherwise okay. In a statement, the family thanked everyone who helped with the rescue, adding, quote, AJ is fine. Hold your kids close. Ivan Watson, CNN, Hong Kong. There's some advice. Uh, Still come up, coming up on First Move. The uh, United Nations says it wants to stay in Afghanistan to deliver aid, but won't be able to do that without new funding. And Brazil braces for pro-Bolsonaro protests. As critics warn, he may attempt a coup in the world's third largest democracy. Welcome back to First Move. U.S. futures remain flat as markets get ready to reopen after a three-day weekend. Goldman Sachs has cut its growth forecast. For the U.S. on concerns about the Delta variant and shrinking support from the federal government, the bank now expects the U.S. economy to grow 5.7% this year. Joining me now, John Petridis, Portfolio Manager at Tocqueville Asset Management. Thanks for joining us. Uh, One of the concerns here being that um, the benefits are being scaled back, have been scaled back, haven't they? Some of the benefits uh, that covered people during the pandemic. And that's not necessarily going to transfer into a reduction in those available jobs. Yeah, I think, um, you know, interesting to your question is this upcoming one day is the JOLTS report, which shows uh, the number of job openings uh, for businesses in the United States. And right now the expectations are something like 9.9 million jobs are open. So the, the curiosity is going to be if that, if that number starts coming down. To be honest with you, I don't think I've ever focused on the jobs, the JOLTS report in my entire life. But, but because the uniqueness of this time in history and this time uh, of the year where kids are going back to school, unemployment benefits are rolling off. You do have a strong consumer, which should have an uptick in holiday season sales, which should force retailers to spend to hire more people uh, to cover that demand. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see uh, what happens on that front. So in terms of uh, forecast, we were talking about Goldman Sachs there. Do you share the same view on that? I mean, how are you able to make forecasts right now with so much uncertainty? Yeah, yeah, clearly, I think there is some uh, weakening in demand, uh, particularly on the leisure side because of the COVID Delta variant. Um, but again, you know, if what we're hearing is true, that, you know, that more booster shots will come, 
you know, children under the age of 12 will, will hopefully get vaccinated in the, or, or the ability for those kids to get vaccinated uh, starting this winter. Um, and, and we start getting uh, cutting off for further variants of COVID to develop. Uh, this, too, should be transitory in terms of um, the, the economic impact. And, and it should lead to, again, continued spending in, in 2022 as we hope to find some sense of normalcy. And take us through uh, these issues with um, companies getting staff effectively. It's very confusing to a lot of people when there's high unemployment as well. or re- There is some unemployment, obviously, on one level, and then there's these available jobs, and that's making uh, things even more difficult for companies. It's, uh, it's, a, it's a difficult cycle we're entering into. I think the big economic data point that uh, viewers and, and investors should be focusing on is during the monthly jobs report, it's not necessarily the headline number of jobs gained. It's really more about the wage inflationary growth. And although the headline data that we saw last week for the uh, August jobs number was well below expectations, it was only like 235,000 new jobs added, wage growth grew. And that's very important because that's what the Fed is focusing on from, in my opinion, one of their main data points from an inflationary standpoint. Uh, Because as wages grow up, that's one of the strongest uh, pass-throughs of inflationary forces from, from an economic standpoint. And, and that's going to be key as the Fed f- smooths out its definition of inflation as being transitory versus structural. So, so focus more on, on wage growth more than anything else. And how is the U.S. economy likely to be affected by global growth rates as well? Because each country is handling the pandemic in a, in a different way. Yeah, I think, well, when it comes to the global economy, there's sort of uh, uh, two barometers. One is, um, you know, whatever happens in the, usually it goes by, if the United States sneezes, the rest of the world catches a cold. But now, because China has evolved into the second largest economy in the world, it's when China sneezes, the rest of the world ex the United States catches a cold. So uh, I think in terms of the global economy, the focus is going to be on China China does have some economic structural issues because its population is aging. Uh, Clearly, the regulatory issues on China is a big deal in terms of foreign investment into China. And there's clearly confusion going on with 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 the current uh, policies that have happened, particularly over the last year or so from a regulatory standpoint. So I think more of the focus is on on what happens to China. Uh, Global growth within the U.S., that would you know, if there's a slowdown in the global economy, uh, the, the biggest industry that probably is impacted is the energy space because a slower global economy leads to um, uh, less demand for oil. Uh, we know that the U.S. cranks out a lot of supply now for, for oil. Higher supply that would lead to and, and lower demand leads to lower oil prices. So that's the one sector and one industry that I think could be impacted the most uh, from a slower global growth environment. John Petrugis, uh, thank you very much. Appreciate your time. Thanks for having me on. You are watching First Move. The market open is just ahead, so we'll see how things are playing out today at least. Welcome back to First Move. US stocks are up and running on the first trading day of the week after the long Labor Day uh, weekend. Uh, stocks are opening flat after Friday's much weaker than expected jobs report. Uh, shares of online dating firm Match Group are soaring. 
following an announcement that the stock will be added to the S&P 500 index later this month. And Spotify is on the rise after Key uh, KeyBank uh, raised its uh, ratings on the stock and JD.com also gaining after the Chinese e-commerce giant appointed a new president. But Bitcoin is down even as El Salvador becomes the first country to adopt uh, the cryptocurrency as legal tender. Now, it's one week since the US and its allies completed their military withdrawal from Afghanistan. The United Nations says that moment marks the start of a humanitarian catastrophe. It warns that upcoming drought, food shortages and the suspension of aid money will devastate Afghanistan. The UN plans to stay to deliver badly needed supplies, but says that means there's an urgent need for new funds. Joining me is Isabel Moussard Carlson. She is the director of the United Nations Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Afghanistan. Thanks for joining us. Uh, In terms of your access to the country, um, are you in there? Are you able to get teams in there at the moment? Yes, good morning. Um, absolutely. I'm in Kabul and I have been in Kabul for uh, several months. Um, our teams are in Afghanistan as well and uh, and we are able to work and have been working um, since the beginning of the year, but also throughout the last couple of weeks. So when you talk about a shortage of funds, um, because there's so much uncertainty uh, with the relationships between governments and the Taliban, presumably um, it's difficult getting funds right now because there's uh, difficult to get transparency through all of those projects. Well, humanitarian funding is is um, is always available to be able to respond to a crisis. Obviously, today the humanitarian plan is only funded at at forty percent, and um, we we already see quite a lot of increase in terms of the needs. Uh, in the first part of the year, the first six months of the year, we were able to serve 8 million people. Uh, we have been able to do that with a lot of different partners, especially NGO partners. And all these humanitarian actors are still on the ground and will still require an, a serious increase of funding for the end of the year to be able to respond to the needs. And um, to f- to to be able to do that, there will be uh, a quite important uh, fundraising meeting on the 13th of September, and uh, and there will be quite a, a call for uh, appeal for Afghanistan uh, during this meeting. What sort of numbers are you talking about here? What sort of money do you need to come out of that meeting? Uh, we need 1.3 billion to be able to respond to 16 million people, um, in, and and that was the plan for the for the year for 2021. And obviously, you know, you've mentioned the 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 catastrophe, the humanitarian catastrophe that we're facing uh, after 40 years of war. We're facing a chronic poverty, um, a, a very severe drought, the second drought in four years a looming economic crisis. So a lot of different aggravating factor. And obviously we've gone through months of conflict as well, which has impacted Afghan people very seriously. And and we have different types of impact, but we've seen a lot of displacement. We're talking over 600,000 people displaced just this year. But overall in the country, we have more than 5 million people who've been displaced the, the previous years as well. And some of these people have been displaced several times uh, and, and have been on the move. So very, very dire situations. Uh, you're caught in the middle to some extent, aren't you here? Because um, there's obviously a big political debate going on about how governments recognise 
the Taliban and whether or not there should be sanctions there, um, all of that does ultimately affect your work because if there are sanctions against the Taliban, then it's going to be more difficult for you to get funding into the country, am I right? Well, it is essential that humanitarians can continue working and be alongside the, the, the Afghan people who are suffering um, those, those dire situations. And I, I really want to point out that as humanitarians, we're still able to work. Uh, we, for example, yesterday we had a plane carrying 53 metric tons of medicine and supplies that landed in Mazar. And that's only the first flight of three other flights coming in in coordination with the WFP. We've also been able to, um, to have um, safe water provided through UNICEF to 166,000 people in, in areas affected by drought. Uh, we have a lot of our partners that are continuing to provide aid to displaced people in, 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 um, in different locations and in Kabul, and they've been able to receive food and non-food items um, to be able to respond to their immediate needs. And so what's really important to understand is as humanitarian, uh, based on our principles, we can continue working. And you're getting the support. You obviously need security support from the Taliban in order to, to continue working. You need to be coordinating with them. And at the moment, uh, you're, you've got that support, presumably, because they're supporting the majority of your work. Well, as, as humanitarians, we negotiate access uh, based on our principle. And this is what is allowing us to work in all sorts of contexts in the world where access to the most vulnerable is, is key. And, and as humanitarians, we want to be able to respond and be alongside those very affected populations. Okay, Isabel Moussard Carson, thank you very much indeed for joining us from the United Nations, the head of the Office for the Coordination of Humanitarian Affairs in Afghanistan. Now, after the break, the man they call the Trump of the tropics faces a tough election next year. Now, Brazil's President Bolsonaro is turning to Trump's playbook, an inner circle for help. Returning to Brazil, where, uh, as we've been hearing, this year's Independence Day is being marked with demonstrations for and against President Bolsonaro. As the president heads towards a tough election next year, he's getting help from some very familiar faces, as Issa Suarez reports. Splashed across a big screen, Brazil's conservatives look to the American right for inspiration. Do you go the path of socialism, or do you remain steadfast and strong for freedom. The Conservative Political Action Conference, CPAC, an American import, is hoping to revive Jair Bolsonaro's dwindling base. As the embattled president faces sliding approval ratings, a weakening economy and public outrage over his handling of the pandemic, which has claimed over 580,000 lives. Luis Felipe de Orleans y Braganza, a lawmaker and Bolsonaro supporter, tells us why the president is seeking a second term in office. He believes that there is a risk that the uh, radical left will take over Brazil and that there is a, a risk of totalitarian regime to take place in Brazil. And I believe in that too. With an election in Brazil looming large, this relationship with the Trump inner circle has strengthened over the years, earning the Bolsonaro family the likes of former Trump campaign manager Steve Bannon. He's the third son 
of the Trump of the Tropics, President Jair Bolsonaro of Brazil. They say, Eduardo, you, you were... With Eduardo Bolsonaro making an appearance at the MyPillow CEO's event. Bolsonaro will win unless it's stolen by, guess what? The machines. The machines. Taking his cue from the Trump playbook, Bolsonaro has been sowing doubt on the integrity of Brazil's entire electronic voting system, calling for printed ballots to supplement electronically cast votes. Ah, não tem prova de fraude. Também não tem, porque não há. And threatening not to hand over the presidency next year if there's suspicion of fraud. Eu tenho três alternativas para o meu futuro. Estar preso, ser morto, as the calls for his impeachment grow louder, Bolsonaro continues to fight for political survival, using the armed forces to project power, with a military parade recently in front of the presidential palace, enough to rattle some of Brazil's political dissonance. Esse é um gesto de autoritarismo, é um gesto de ditadura. Então, isto me deixa muito preocupada, sim, muito preocupada. A former member of Brazil's Communist Party, Amelinha Tell, says she was a victim of torture during the country's brutal military dictatorship, which lasted 21 years. Eu me vi acuada, eu me vi torturada, perseguida, ameaçada constantemente, eu e minha família. Mas nós tivemos também a alegria de ver a resistência e a luta do povo nas ruas. Is Brazil's democracy at risk, Emelinha? Com certeza, com certeza, infelizmente. Nós não podemos largar o passado, achar que o que passou, passou e acabou. Não é verdade. O passado está muito no presente. Cautionary words from those who carry the scars of those dark days and who fear that Brazil's past might just be about to repeat itself. Isa Suarez, CNN. Uh, listen to that. My next guest, Christopher Sabatini, Senior Fellow for Latin America at Chatham House here in London. Thanks for joining us. Uh, how concerned are you Thanks, about Brazil? I'm very concerned. I mean, we're seeing the rallies today. We'll see how those play out. Uh, but it's obviously a symptomatic of a deeper set of polarization. Uh, Bolsonaro is very unpopular right now. He's about 25% popular approval ratings. Uh, more than half uh, are uh, his disapproval ratings. But, um, you know, the truth is, is that he's tr clearly trying to stoke division, trying to engage in a real sort of vilification of his enemies and trying to curry favor among the military to be able to consolidate his power. And th that's very troubling, maybe not just even today. And let's hope there's no violence today, but there is that possibility. But in the long term, in terms of He's criticized the Supreme Court. He's called one of the Supreme Court justices the a mother of a, the mother of a whore. Um, the uh, he is uh, the son of a whore, rather. He is he's really quite a, a nasty individual who is really trying to just sully all the political institutions as a way of, of creating distrust uh, to consolidate his own power. And he, um, I mean, these not so subtle suggestions of, of a coup, uh, you know, these references going back to the 1964 coup, they are there if you look in his language. Is that right? That's absolutely right. He's referring to the demonstrations today as a cleansing. That's not coincidental. 1964 in the coup, uh, the military took power. They referred to it as Operation Cleansing. And it was the idea was to cleanse the country of leftists. Uh, and it, they unseated a, a president who was 
uh, deemed to have leftist tendencies and had a communist plan. And that's very much, as you indicated in, in the uh, story just before this, that's very much the rhetoric they're using now, that they are basically the guardians of uh, uh, all that is good and proper in Brazil, uh, protecting it against uh, communism and tyranny. So with Donald Trump Jr. apparently advising Bolsonaro, also Steve Bannon, um, what does that uh, tell us about the strategy going forward, do you think? Well, Max, you said this earlier. This is basically their playbook. This is the Trump playbook uh, through and through. Uh, very much, you know, they've studied the January 6th uh, insurrection in the United States and the seizure of the Capitol, uh, of the Capitol building, and they're trying to uh, really learn from it in this particular instance. And Steve Bannon has, has met with the son of Bolsonaro, the president of Bolsonaro, um, and in fact, who's also, by the way, under investigation for corruption, and trying to basically you know, sow enough doubt uh, within the minds of, of his supporters and using social media and rhetoric to be able to basically tear down democratic institutions. This is you know, very much in the idea of Steve Bannon's idea uh, plans of, of a sort of right-wing uh, populist uh, uh, demagogues taking over. And, and you know, they're, they very much see this as an experiment uh, in how to retain power and to bring Trump back in the United States as well. Well, they are very different countries, of course, so it's difficult to channel the same sort of feeling, particularly when Trump had a higher approval rating in his country than Bolsonaro seems to have right now. Yes, and Bolsonaro, obviously, he's completely mishandled the COVID uh, crisis. The more than 600,000 Brazilians have died as a result of uh, the pandemic. Uh, he's also under investigation for corruption. So there's a whole uh, train of, of things that are behind him. Uh, and as he said in the, in the statement that you also showed earlier, he's declaring that the options for him are going to be jail, uh, death or victory. And he says that jail is not an option. So the, the, the effort, too, is to paint him very much as Trump did, as a martyr to uh, the deep state, as a martyr to his enemies, uh, and stoking the sense of distrust uh, within, his within his popular base. Uh, and, and the popular base, by the way, you mentioned uh, um, the, the rise of CPAC. The NRA is also very active in, in Brazil, uh, as are evangelicals. One of his core uh, constituencies in his the, the small percent that, that support him are evangelicals. And the rest are a lot of gun-toting uh, people, in the, particularly in the north of Brazil, what they call in Brazil the Bibles, beef, and bullets uh, constituency. And that's really his core uh, constituency. And when you talk about martyrdom, I mean, he's literally talking literally about martyrdom, isn't he? When he referred to, you know, the options ahead of him being prison, death or victory, he's suggesting if he doesn't win this, he could, he could die and that would evoke support, presumably, in that constituency you described. Yeah, and there is precedent for this. There was a former president, Getulio Vargas, who committed suicide. Uh, so, you know, he's very much trying to contra And Getulio Vargas also had some somewhat fascist uh, uh, leanings himself. Uh, so he's very much trying to conjure up this idea that he himself is a savior and a martyr uh, for uh, all that is he, he likes to believe is good and righteous uh, in Brazil. OK, uh, Christopher Sabatini, appreciate your insight there from Chatham House. Thank you very much indeed. Okay. Uh, next on First Move, a tale of two telecom companies. What a new deal between Japan's SoftBank and Germany's Deutsche Telekom really means for the industry. Welcome back. Uh, shares in Japan's SoftBank have ended the day nearly 10% higher after it struck a $7 billion share swap deal with Germany's Deutsche Telekom. Anna Stewart here to explain what it all means in very simple terms, Anna. 
<laughs> well, we're nearing the end of the show. This is the perfect light-hearted fun story, an equity <laughs> share swap deal. Um, it is complicated, but if you really boil it down to the main part, it's frankly just the German company, Deutsche Telekom, wanting greater ownership and greater control of T-Mobile US, which is its most profitable unit by far. In order for that to happen, SoftBank, the Japanese company, are selling a big stake in T-Mobile US, and in return, they are getting shares, newly created shares, in Deutsche Telekom. At the same time, the German company are selling off T-Mobile, the Netherlands, for over $6 billion. They will use some of that cash to finance buying even more shares of T-Mobile US. So at the end of all this, analysts expect that the German company will own, I think, between 48 and 49 percent of T-Mobile US. So inching just ever closer to having direct control of the company. Max? Uh, Deutsche Telekom, you know, very keen on the US market. Um, how does SoftBank, SoftBank play into that then? I know, because it's interesting. They're exiting this market. Uh, well, they're calling it a win-win-win. And it's interesting because SoftBank really wanted to be a big player when it came to US telecoms. That is why they bought Sprint all the way back in 2013. That was when it was the third biggest player and it wanted to merge it with T-Mobile US. Now, that took years, lots of regulatory challenges. And in that time, actually, Sprint's performance under SoftBank really plummeted to the point that it became the number four player. When the merger finally happened, it was very much T-Mobile being the lead player there. And at the same time, remember that SoftBank over those years has become a big investor in all sorts of companies, whether we're talking about Alibaba or Uber or WeWork or Wirecard. Not all of those investments, of course, have been particularly good And that is perhaps why uh, in the last quarter we saw profits for SoftBank down nearly 40%. So this could be a bit of a rebalance of their portfolio. And look at the share price today. Investors are welcoming it, nearly up 10%. Max? There you are. Some good news for investors in that particular stock. Thank you, Anna. Let's have a look at the wider market, see how they're doing in early trade, particularly in the United States. You can see the Dow Jones is down half a percent. NASDAQ also down only slightly there in the S&P 500, a bit wider, down a third of 1%. But it's early days, as I say, after that long weekend in the United States. We'll see how that plays out. And Richard will be back later with the updates on that. So that's it for this show. Thank you for watching Connect the World with Becky up next. When you work, you work next level. When you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.